Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news in Hoosier Law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of Indiana Lawyer and your host. Thanks for joining us. Believe it or not, this episode marks the 20th installment of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. As we've done for the past 19 episodes, we'll start off with the most important headlines that have been in the news since the last print issue of Indiana Lawyer. Then, we'll move to our extended interview. This week, it's with Senior Judge John Baker of the Court of Appeals of Indiana. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Today is Wednesday, August 10th, 2022, and these are your headlines. First, an update on some sad news from Indiana's 2nd Congressional District. On Wednesday, August 3rd, Indiana Congresswoman Jackie Wolorski was killed in a vehicle accident in northern Indiana. Wolorski was traveling with two of her staffers, Zach Potts and Emma Thompson, who were also killed. According to law enforcement, at about 12.30 on August 3rd, two vehicles crashed on State Road 19 south of State Road 119. Initial reports said a northbound vehicle crossed the center line and collided with Wolorski's SUV, but law enforcement later said it was Wolorski's vehicle that crossed the center line. Potts was said to be driving the SUV, but at our deadline, it wasn't clear why he crossed the center line. The woman in the other vehicle, 56-year-old Edith Schmucker, was pronounced dead at the scene. Wolorski, who was 58, had represented Indiana's 2nd District in the U.S. House of Representatives since 2012, following three terms in the Indiana House of Representatives. Potts, who was 27, was her district director and chairman of the St. Joseph County Republican Party. Thompson, who was 28, was her communications director. Wolorski was up for re-election in November. Indiana code requires the governor to call a special election to fill a congressional vacancy that opens up less than 74 days before a general election, a time frame that would fit this situation. But experts are saying that Governor Eric Holcomb could wait until November to hold that election. That's what happened in 2010, when former 3rd District Congressman Mark Soder resigned under Governor Mitch Daniels. At our deadline, Holcomb hadn't yet announced his plans for a special election. An outpouring of condolences began immediately after news of the accident was announced. President Joe Biden said Walorski was respected by members of both parties for her work on the House Ways and Means Committee, while Indiana's entire congressional delegation released a joint statement calling Walorski's death a tremendous loss. Messages of support were also released for Potts and Thompson's families. On August 10th, calling hours are being held for Walorski at Granger Community Church in Mishawaka from noon to 7 p.m. The funeral is at 11 a.m. on August 11th at that church. We have more information about Walorski and reactions to the accident on our website. Check back with theindianalawyer.com regularly for updates. Let's switch gears to some court news. On Thursday, August 4th, the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee voted 13 to 9 to advance Magistrate Judge Doris Pryor's nomination to be a judge on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals to the full U.S. Senate. Pryor has been nominated to fill a vacancy that will open up when Judge David Hamilton takes senior status this year. If she's confirmed, she'll be the first black woman from Indiana to serve on the Seventh Circuit. Pryor received bipartisan support from the Judiciary Committee, with Republican Senators Lindsey Graham and Tom Tillis supporting her nomination. Indiana Republican Senators Todd Young and Mike Braun are also supporting her. But not all Republicans are backing Pryor. At her confirmation hearing last month, GOP Senator Mike Lee questioned her about comments she made at a Constitution Day event at her son's school. Pryor had told the students that the Constitution is a living document, raising questions in the Judiciary Committee about whether she thought the meaning of the Constitution could change over time. Before the committee's vote, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley 
who is the ranking Republican on the committee, said he could not support Pryor because she had not satisfactorily answered questions about her views on the Constitution. The next step for Pryor is a hearing and vote before the full Senate, which has not yet been scheduled. We'll let you know once those dates are announced. Pryor is currently a magistrate judge in the Indiana Southern District Court, which is in the process of considering applications to replace her as a magistrate judge if she gets confirmed to the appellate bench. The district court also recently announced a new magistrate judge to replace Deborah McVicker Lynch, who is retiring. Kelly Barr, currently an attorney with IU Health, has been chosen to fill Lynch's seat when she retires in October. Check back with us periodically for more updates about changes to Indiana's federal bench. Speaking of the Seventh Circuit, the appellate court recently handed down a big decision upholding the rights of religious organizations to hire and fire whomever they choose. The decision came in the case brought by Lynn Starkey, who was fired from her longtime job at Roncalli High School in Indianapolis because she is married to a woman. Starkey had argued that the Catholic high school discriminated against her, but the school in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis, which were both defendants, prevailed on First Amendment grounds. Specifically, the Seventh Circuit ruled that Starkey was a, quote, minister of the faith in her position at the religious high school. That means the school was protected from Starkey's discrimination claim by the ministerial exception. The ruling was unanimous, but Judge Frank Easterbrook did write a separate concurrence to express concern about the process of deciding these types of cases. Here and in other courts, Easterbrook said, judges are starting their analysis in cases involving the ministerial exception with a constitutional question under U.S. Supreme Court precedent. But, he argued, the court should actually start with a statutory question under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, specifically a statute that excuses religious organizations from having to comply with Title VII. He wrote, quote, I cannot imagine any plausible read of the statute that boils down to church can discriminate against persons of other faiths but cannot discriminate on account of sex, end quote. Following the Seventh Circuit ruling, Starkey's attorney said her client does not plan to seek rehearing or appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Instead, she says Starkey plans to, quote, advocate that government funding not go to private schools that engage in discrimination, end quote. Moving to state courts, a lawsuit has been filed in Marion Superior Court seeking more than half a million dollars in damages from the state. The plaintiffs are 17 Indiana landlords who are suing Governor Holcomb. They're arguing that the governor violated the Indiana Constitution and the emergency power statute when he imposed a 16-month ban on evictions due to the COVID-19 pandemic. The landlords say they collectively lost more than $577,000 during the moratorium. The complaint contends that even when businesses were allowed to start opening again during the pandemic, the prohibition on evictions continued. It also says landlords did not have direct access to rental assistance funds. All of these issues amount to a violation of the Indiana Constitution's takings clause, according to the landlords, as well as the separation of powers and contract clauses, and the emergency power statute. Holcomb's office did not respond to a request for comment on the lawsuit. We'll keep an eye on it as it progresses. Moving to the Indiana State House, Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancomb has updates for us on the continuing effort to ban abortion in the state. Katie? After hastening through a special session and sifting through dozens of amendments in roughly two weeks, Indiana lawmakers have put their stamp of approval on an abortion bill on Friday that was quickly signed into law by Governor Eric Holcomb. The measure enacts a near-total ban on abortions in Indiana with some exceptions, making the Hoosier state the first to pass a ban through both chambers in a special session after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. Here's what Indiana's new abortion law says. Abortions can be performed to protect a pregnant person's life and physical health. 
in instances of a rape or incest up to 10 weeks post-fertilization, and if there's a diagnosis of a fatal fetal anomaly. Victims of rape and incest will not be required to sign a notarized affidavit attesting to the attack that led to their pregnancy. Abortions permitted under the law must be performed in hospitals or hospital-owned outpatient centers, removing licenses from all abortion clinics. The bill also removes the provision permitting the Indiana Attorney General to take over abortion-related cases if a local prosecutor declines to pursue the case. It would also require and not permit the revocation of a physician's medical license if a doctor performs an illegal abortion under state law. If an abortion occurs, a quarterly report must be made that includes the reasons for the abortion. Holcomb characterized the special session as being full of, quote, thorough and thoughtful debate. In a statement, the governor said that in his view, Senate Enrolled Act 1 accomplishes the goal of protecting life and was informed by, quote, sobering and personal testimony from citizens and elected representatives on this emotional and complex topic. Among the majorly debated amendments that were considered on Friday was an unsuccessful effort by Republican Representative Karen Engelman to remove exceptions for rape and incest, which was defeated. She said that no one chooses to be the victim of rape or incest, but that, quote, ending the life of an unborn child is neither necessary nor an evidence-based treatment for rape. Democratic Representative Cherish Pryor condemned the amendment, citing the story of a 10-year-old rape victim who traveled from Ohio to Indiana to end a pregnancy. After defeating a last-minute motion to suspend the bill indefinitely, the full House voted to pass the measure on Friday with a 62-38 to 38 vote. The bill then moved to the Senate, where it was criticized by both parties. Some argued that the provisions included would have a negative impact on low-income women and the state's health care system. Others claimed that the bill wasn't strong enough in protecting the unborn and punishing doctors. The Senate passed the measure 28-19, to 19, with eight Republicans joining the minority party and voting against the measure. Hoosiers rallied outside the State House to voice their concerns up to the very end as lawmakers drew closer to finalizing the bill on Friday evening. Nora Grasser says that it's been an emotional few weeks. She says that she thinks that a child should be given their humanity, dignity, and their life. I'm very proud of our legislators. I think they've debated it well over the last couple of weeks. Um, it's not as far as we would like to go, but I think it's, it's a good step. But Ann Pichota says that she's angry about what she views as the removal of freedoms for Hoosier women's health and safety. Pachota says her mother, who was severely abused by her husband, had to seek a back alley abortion. And these people who think they just say, oh, we'll take care of these women. Nobody took care of my mother. She died a broken, angry, miserable person. And right now her ashes are back in England and they're rolling around in her urn. And I'm here just fighting for her and people like her. It's just, it's just disgusting what they just did. I can't, I can't believe it. The bill will go into effect on September 15th. Stay tuned to theindianalawyer.com for additional coverage. Thanks, Katie. Staying on the topic of abortions, let me tell you about a couple articles we're working on for the August 17th issue of Indiana Lawyer. First, a story I'm writing for the next issue. Indiana legislators have been working at the Statehouse crafting new abortion laws in recent weeks. At the same time, old laws are going into effect as federal courts are lifting injunctions. As of the time this podcast was recorded, four major laws had injunctions lifted between the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Indiana Southern District Court. So how does this all work? Do the old laws and the new laws work in harmony? Has the state ever faced a similar situation? 
I'm speaking with law experts to get a clearer understanding of the issue and how litigation is currently being handled. Next, a story IL senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl is working on. The abortion ban working through the Indiana State House is taking shape, but there is still ambiguous language. Specifically, Section 24 offers a provision about a criminal defense, seeming to imply that women can use that provision as a defense if she has an illegal abortion. But then the section refers to the state's feticide law. Will abortion be a criminal act? To learn more about these stories, pick up the August 17th issue of Indiana Lawyer. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. Head over to theindianalawyer.com for more on these stories or for other news from the Indiana legal community. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my conversation with Senior Judge John Baker. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Senior Judge John Baker of the Court of Appeals of Indiana in studio with us today. Judge Baker, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with you. Uh, I would like to provide some brief background on your career in law. Um, Judge Baker, the most senior member of the state's judiciary, was named to the Court of Appeals in, in 1989 and is the longest serving member on the current court. He served as Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals from 2007 to 2010 and retired from the court on July 31, 2020 after writing more than 5,000 opinions. Uh, he now serves as a senior judge. Judge Baker is a Southern Indiana native who grew up in Aurora, right? Uh, he earned a BA in history from IU in 1968 and his JD from Indiana University School of Law, Bloomington in 71. Uh, Baker practiced law in Bloomington as a partner in Baker, Barnhart, and Andrews and later served for 13 and a half years as judge of Monroe County and Monroe Superior Courts. In that time, he disposed of more than 15,000 cases. Did it feel like that many? It seemed like it at the time, yes. <laughs> uh, in 2013, Judge Baker retired after 33 years of teaching at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University Bloomington. He retired in 2015 after teaching a class for foreign lawyers at Indiana University McKinney School of Law for over 10 years. Obviously, there's a lot we could cover, Judge uh, Baker, but we thought for this episode we would focus on uh, your current role in the judiciary as a senior judge. So to begin with, can you explain the role of a senior judge and how it's different from a full-time judge? Well, the senior judge was created several years ago, decades ago, in fact, and it was intended to supplement the Indiana judiciary so that we didn't have to create uh, full-time judicial positions. I think one thing that your listeners would always appreciate is we're Hoosiers, we're always tight with our money. So as a result, this was a thought that we could use some expertise and some uh, experience without incurring a heavy costs. It's been a great program for the state. I suspect it would be fair to say that our judiciary would not be as effective as it is, but for the presence of the senior judges, both in the trial and in the appellate court. Mm -hmm. uh, when did you know it was time for you to take senior status? Well, it, it involved um, some family matters. Uh, my wife had had some health issues, and uh, as she recovered, I thought maybe we needed to um, take an opportunity while it was in front of us to enjoy a little of life. 
unfortunately, when we made that decision, there was a pandemic that uh, visited us almost immediately. And um, so that precluded us from doing some of the things that we otherwise would have done. But it also made the transition from a full-time judge working remotely to a part-time judge often working remotely a little bit more smoothly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the transition like for you um, when you did, you kind of mentioned there, but what, what was it like for you? Was there anything that was kind of surprising, I guess? <laughs> well, I have to self-report that uh, after I went on senior status, I was asked to fill in for a guy by the name of John Baker <laughs> because they had not yet filled my position on the Court of Appeals. So I had the, I had the privilege of working full-time for a part-time salary. But uh, <laughs> no kidding. I did that for about 45 days. And then uh, my replacement, who happens to also be from the beautiful little town of Aurora, uh, came at full time. And as such, I've been a senior judge since working mostly with the Court of Appeals. But sometimes I have gone back and served as a trial judge. And I had not done that for I think it would have been 32 years and a lot of things had changed since I was a trial judge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that, has that often happened with, uh, I don't think there's anybody else presently in the state that is doing both appellate and trial work. It has happened in the past. Jonathan Robertson, who was on our court, um, for several decades, uh, served with the court of appeals and also part-time as a trial judge, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we haven't had anybody do that. I suspect in the last 20 some years. Uh, what does a normal work week look like for you right now? Well, it, it, if I'm senior judging, um, as a trial bench, I do like any other trial judge. I try to get to work at about eight or eight 15 and, uh, get home at about five, uh, five 30. And that's five days a week. And I do that generally, um, right in a row, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, so that I can share with you, Jordan, that it's fair to say that Friday uh, evening, I'm, I'm tired. (laughs) But um, normally, when I'm doing work with a court of appeals, I probably only spend about a day and a half a week. uh, And that is spread out. Um, I might work uh, an hour on Monday and three hours on Tuesday and two hours on Wednesday and a full day on Thursday. Uh, and we divide that up in the, the, the state has figured out a way that we divide our day into tenths. And that's the way we were paid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So filling out timesheets is something I hadn't done since 1975. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to do that again. Uh, so how are you spending your free time that, that you have? Well, um, because of some health issues within, within our family, we've been precluded from doing the traveling that we thought we would. But uh, I've enjoyed uh, working more with my church uh, and other organizations. Um, I've spent uh, time with a seminary. It's hard to imagine that I would be on a board of trustees of a seminary, but I am. And that takes up some time. I work with a board of ordained ministries with the United Methodist Church. And all of those things have occupied my time. I, I've come to understand that the minute you say you're retired, everybody volunteers you for a voluntary service. So, um, but I've enjoyed it, um, and um, I've done a lot of reading, uh, and, and reading not just legal briefs and, uh, and pleadings, but uh, 
for uh, enjoyment. Um, has your perspective on the judiciary kind of changed at all since your role has changed? I don't think so. I, 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 I will say that I feel a little bit more informed about what's going on in the trial courts uh, because I've gone back to the trial courts. So you have to try to remember, and your listeners would, I, most of them won't even know of these times, but when I was a trial judge, they had things called files, and they used, we had books, and we had, I had a special pen to, to, to sign orders. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. It's all in the cloud. Mm -hmm. Everything's online. Everything's uh, digitized. Um, I have had trials at the trial court where the parties are in different cities and their attorneys might be in different cities. And I'm the only one that's in the courtroom with the court reporter. Yeah. So uh, picking back up, what's the office like in downtown Indy with the other uh, senior judges? Well, because of the pandemic, it's not as it's not what I thought it would be or what it was prior to the pandemic, um, because I might be the only senior judge there or maybe one other, mm -hmm. whereas we have four or five people that are serving as senior judges. So one of the things that you'd miss is the interaction with the other judicial personnel and staff. Um, it, it, this might be an overstatement, but I always thought of my chambers with, at the Court of Appeals as kind of like my work family. Mm -hmm. I had an administrative assistant and three law clerks, uh, one or two of whom would stay with me for s some period of time. And so the, when you spend as much time as we did, 40 hours a week, week after week after week, you not only addressed issues of law, but, you know, I knew everything about their families and what their hopes and aspirations were. And I think that's one of the things I miss the most. What's your uh, relationship also like with the current Court of Appeals judges? Um, and do they, do they come to you for advice? Some have. Uh, and, of course, when they do, I'm always flattered. Um, and sometimes we just visit and talk. And one of the jobs I th believe I have with the Court of Appeals is to share with them some of the history. Not that which would be otherwise written down, but what we will call the lore of the court. Um, having been there as long as I was, I joined the court, if you can imagine, at a time when there were two women um, I joined the court when one of the women that was on the Court of Appeals was the first woman judge in Indiana. That was Sue Shields back when she was a Hamilton Superior Court judge. And, and now I think the court's pretty much evenly split gender-wise. Um, when I joined the court, there were several judges that had been there from back when they used to elect judges prior to the constitutional amendment adopted by the people in November of 1970, effective G January 1 of 1972. So that was a different group of people. Uh, the, I think when I first joined the court, save the two women that were on the court, all the other men had served in World War II or the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And uh, upon my retirement, I was the last person that had military service on the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, there, there are just different backgrounds, different experiences, but the present Court of Appeals has some brilliant, thoughtful people uh, that really want to get the right answer as, and to do it in a timely fashion. So it's something about which I'm very proud. You know, you, you kind of mentioned it there, but why do you feel it is important that um, it seems like there's been some, you know, there's been a lot of changes, a lot of new judges mm-hmm. put on the Court of Appeals. Why is it important that they, you know, understand the history of the Court of Appeals? Well, sometimes, if nothing else, you don't want to make the same mistakes that we did. Um, sure. But um, it is, um, it, it, I think it gives them a, a deeper appreciation for um, what the court has been. And the, the present generation on the court is going to decide what the court's going to be. Um, but I suspect that there are some things that um, we were able to bring about that will continue. When I first joined the court, the court did its business pretty much by district. That is, if you were from the first district, that's southern Indiana, you dealt with cases from the, that, that area. And, and so forth, uh, that became imbalanced. So uh, at some point in time, we decided to just have a computer assign us to work with different panels, and then the cases would be coming to us randomly. Mm-hmm. So we had cases from all over the state, and I worked not with just uh, two people from southern Indiana, but with judges from all over the state. What I came to learn was that... Um, all of us have different backgrounds and we come from different, we went to different schools and um, might have different uh, religious faiths, but Hoosiers are Hoosiers. And um, more often than not, uh, the judges of the Court of Appeals agree. And I think that will continue. The other thing that I'm very proud of is during my tenure, we started an outreach program, which is called Appeals on Wheels. Um, that's where we take the court literally to various venues throughout the state, whether it be a high school auditorium, um, a local courthouse, a community center, what have you, and really have a case argued in the presence of students and or citizens, and afterwards have question and answers uh, not about the case, but about courts and the law and the judicial system. And I think that's taught people not only what we are, but also what we are not. Uh, we don't have witnesses. We don't have a jury box. We don't have it. So um, I heard one of my colleagues suggest that the public finds out that we, um, we're kind of like the repay play referees in up, upstairs. You know, the, somebody called it... Um, made the call on the field, but uh, we do the instant replay. Uh, But it's not always as instant. I will say also that during my tenure, the Court of Appeals became very efficient. That is timely. Uh, I think it was one time, I don't know if it's still the case, but I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't, that we were the most current intermediate Court of Appeals in the nation. That is, our cases pended a shorter period of time than any other state. Uh, Monroe Circuit Court Judge Mark Kellums, um, a fellow senior judge, recently passed away in a tragic auto accident. Um, how will you remember his legacy? Well, I had the good pleasure of serving with um, Judge Kellums um, on the trial bench. He joined our trial bench in Monroe County 
on January the 1st, 1981. I remember vividly thereafter, we had a meeting in a jury room and it was proposed that we share equally in the workload and resources uh, expended by the Monroe County Council for the Monroe County Judiciary. And this was, uh, this was a, a new thing, that is, that we were going to have a unified court. And Mark was a part of that. Um, I had a good pleasure of mentoring him for several years before I left to go to the Court of Appeals, and I quite frankly would share with you and the public that in later life, I think Mark became a mentor to me. Uh, he was a man of commitment to the law. He was a man of deep faith. I suspect people will know that he became a deacon in the Roman Catholic Church, and he continued to minister to people in various venues. I truly believe he was a gift from God. Is there anything uh, lawyers should know about senior judges they might not be aware of? Well, I suspect that one of the things is that, especially when a judge is on the trial bench and somewhat in, unfamiliar with the traditions of that community, that the lawyers take it upon themselves to assume that the judge does not know all of the uh, local lore and to have try to, as gently as possible, uh, bring that judge up to speed. Because, quite frankly, it inures to the benefit of both those lawyers and their clients, uh, because that makes the senior judge much more effective. I've had the good fortune of most of my uh, trial bench time has been in Boone County, where I reside. And the lawyers there have been uh, very helpful and understanding. Um, and uh, the court staff and the Boone Circuit Court, is, I don't think it can be duplicated. They're, they're just unbelievably good uh, and helpful. And um, no, Judge, that's the O-N button. Press the on thing. Yes, Judge. No, no. You want they, they walk me through those things, and uh, I really appreciate that. Absolutely. That will do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Judge John Baker for joining us today. As always, you can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service.